0: as Joost, Dan, and before the screening. We have quite some time, I think a little over an hour, to talk about the film, but also we have a lot of clips and outtakes and extra films that will bring everything that we've just seen into our perspective, I think. Um, and of course there will be time uh, for you to ask questions. I think it's best if we do that question and answer session with the audience at the end of of the session unless you have a really urgent question you can always raise your hand and we can try to answer it uh, right away but my first question to you would actually be um, you worked quite some time on this film, I think a little over five years four four years, it's based on a book with 3,000 footnotes and 600 pages and a lot of additional research uh, went into the, to the making as well um, in this whole process what for you was the most eye-opening thing because you all know, okay, we know these people and we know about the world but what was the most eye-opening thing okay. for you? I
1: probably questioned the eye <laughs> uh, well uh, actually two diametrically opposing things Is one is uh, reading to the book uh, we had, of course, uh, with this encyclopedia on the corruption in the global arms trade, there's still a couple of stories. And one was that, which is maybe more more obvious one, that Boris uh, Zaharov, which is one of the first stories in the book, was dealing to both sides. So it was not much about sort of like morals or ethics, but it was more about making profit and extending that war, because dealing to both sides means that the war is extended and that more money is made. Um, that was one the second was actually that these these armed dealers are not sort of hiding in the shadows but actually that this happens in the highest echelon of powers and that actually as Ricardo Privetel one of those small-time arms dealers says that actually you know that it's the politicians who are the, the runners for these defense companies and that they are the biggest, biggest sales people and that was for me a surprise that I distilled out of the book uh, and these are the likes of President bin Sultan, but also George Bush and <coughs> Thatcher and Reagan where the film, film stars. So that was a surprise. But this is one thing which is quite sort of perverse. But on the other hand, researching on my own, trying to look for this into a film, uh, trying to come up with sort of an alternative, was for me also surprised that actually we're not wired for, for war. And so, putting those two things together, we, we can talk more about this uh, but these were my findings where we set out to interview Franz de Waal, Immortalis, uh, Michael Hart, people who think about this thing in a very different way. <clears throat> and so that, that, on the one hand you have that political game that actually pushes people uh, to go to war. You know, if somebody signs up to go fight in Iraq, it's not because she's aggressive, but because she has to pay his tuition. And so that was the second surprise, those two diametrically opposed sort of themes that uh, tried to distill into the film.
0: And then, of course, as Eduardo Galliano says in the film, you have to make it all into a story. story. So how do you proceed from there?
1: Um, Well, we're all uh, (coughs) uh, storytelling animals. And it's what is our common denominator. Even politicians tell stories. Even, you know, fictions and lies and weapons of mass destruction, whatever. Even politicians are storytellers. But yeah, to to make this sort of a 90-minute format and also translate it into a visual story uh, I thought it was crucial to also show what that arms trade and that corruption does to the rest of the world so I wanted to have that voice of the Global South as well uh, so we have Vijay Prashat um, who was actually, he was at the time uh, had the Edward Said chair at the American University in Beirut who talks from that position of the global south he's an expert and he writes about that as well we have uh, uh, Marta Benavides who was a guerrilla fighter but who was the left or right hand left hand of, of Archbishop Romero who knows through and through the story of El Salvador which now even today uh, more people per capita are killed in El Salvador than actually in Iraq nobody knows about that but that's also because of the weapons and the factions and conflicting zones and the, the, the regime that was imposed in the 80s. So we have Marta Benavides but also Mutazar Al-Zaidi the shoe thrower who throws the shoe at Bush and being a journalist was investigating those stories that even for example a story about three American soldiers who had raped a 16 year, 16 year old Iraqi girl then who was killed afterwards. She wanted to expose that and so his frustration of living in Iraq and not getting that voice out there like <coughs> making him to actually prepare to actually show a, a shoe at the face of George Bush to hear the story from, from, that, from that perspective was so crucial to have an emotional anchor, anchor uh, point to the film. So <coughs>
0: did that mean that together with Andrew Feinstein, who was a, uh, an interviewee in the film, but also the interviewer in a lot of occasions, did yeah. you have to do a lot of additional research and um, find, well you mentioned some, but more people that were not in the book? in order to tell this story
1: and make it your own story appropriate. It. Yeah. yeah. well of course um, you, you, need, you need to find people who, who sort of can tell the story from the camera and often some people like Robert Fisk or Sayers or Vijay Prashad they, they, they often are on television so that sort of helped um, but there was this, of course. Here you have Andrew Feinstein, the investigative journalist, politician turned investigative journalist, and me, the storyteller. There was um, it was a lot of like uh, uh, a lot of dialogue of trying to how we're going to put this into a film that's going to work, uh, knowing that, that the way I tell stories is often very different. And so we have sort of the, the poet and the and the politician, or the, the investigative journalist and the poet, and, and it was not so easy to try to combine it in a story that would work. Um, I always compare that to uh, Mahmoud Darvish, who we actually initially wanted to have, in, the Palestinian poet who we wanted to have in the film. We had even recorded a Palestinian actress uh, who was recounting those those poems. He's, he's, he says, you know, I write... Uh, poems that deal with love uh, you know the poet chooses the side of love because I want to expose the conditions that don't allow me to <laughs> write about love and the first the initial question came from Jocelyn Barnes who gave me a phone call would you like to make a film about yeah, the, producer the, of the film. Or producing, of the producer yeah, of the, producing film. the film who asked me you would like to make a film about the corruption of the global arts and I just gee no I just had finished this whole research of five years in ter- into hijacking with dial history and double take was three four years about the Cold War and I'm, I'm ready to to actually talk about different things maybe a love story and she laughs and said you know well love is worse the war and I was taken that sort of set forth uh, but through the back door uh, it slipped back into the film and I think it's interesting to look at a subject matter from its complete opposite so in order to to make those juxtapositions that make that certain things, certain themes, shine through in a a, a very different way. And so it's through those sort of contradictions that something comes alive in a much sort of stronger way. So it was also the contradiction between Andrew and me.
0: And, I mean, two questions, and one we can talk about later, is how is love the opposite of war? Because we always think peace is the opposite of war. And the other is, how did Andrew uh, agree with that? to have the other stories sneak in through
1: the back said. well it was, there was a lot of discussions also with the producer and, and trying to come up with school going to interview uh, but it, it, it's you know talking about war you want to talk about peace but all these concepts have been so corrupted and chewed down and they've become very watery and you want to say something it's been sort of it's, it's, it's so called what they say not sexy and now we thought that that juxtaposition between fear and love But I would rather say the cult of privatization, which starts in the 80s with all this deregulation, with Thatcher and Reaganism, where greed is good is sort of put forth on the agenda and justified by all the social Darwinism myths, versus community, which is a very different thing. And it's what Michael Hart embodies as well, is sort of this juxtaposition between private sphere and the privatization and what one would call the common and um, maybe what's going on with uh, our economics and, and well maybe the arms trade is a big symptom of that that actually our our what is our public good our public tax our public <coughs> money has been completely stolen and corrupted and, and, and actually appropriately stolen for 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 something that is in the name of like making more profit and more profit and more profit and so we chose for, for actually making that juxtaposition because if you talk about law it also sounds very corny and cheesy but still I think you know uh um, you've seen everyday words disappear there's this film with Michael Hart where I juxtaposed, initially we had it in the film juxtaposed Michael Hart with uh, scenes from Alphaville dystopian society where everything about love and affection is being banned at the, at the threat of, of death and sometimes I think that we sort of live in a world where we don't know anymore how to talk about community it's like what Rebecca Solnit, uh, the San Francisco writer tells us that it's not only the privatization of our goods, but it's the privatization of our fantasies, of our, of, of our imagination, of how we can come up with different stories to tell how political, p- political stories could sort of be told in a very different way. How to talk about community. Law is maybe a cheesy word, but, but that's what it comes down to. And that's sort of what I hope that would also like get into the film. So
0: this way, it also <coughs> seems like you tell a story about corruption and, uh, and global arms trade, but by starting in the Second World War with the the first sort of famous double dealer and then bringing it to the 80s where you had the the big wave of privatization, it's basically also an economic story.
1: Yes, um, but, you know, all these sort of ideas about survival of the fittest, for example, uh, was appropriated from Darwin to Herbert Spencer to actually... Economize—what those myths are all about, you know. And it it ended up where actually Milton Friedman's Chicago School adopted that whole sort of theory that greed is good, and sort of it's in a sense maybe a way of also like legitimizing what's going on in in sort of conflict situations. But where actually literally what that's what what some character in the film says—that war is privatized. So war has been reduced to economics. It's all about profits. And so maybe that paradigm should should have a complete change. Where you know this is not sustainable. If ever, if the GDP has to grow every year three uh, percent, it's not sustainable. Maybe there's, there's the need for another paradigm. A paradigm that actually put community up front.
0: So we have to pause that a bit and come back to that film that also includes uh, the Jean Luc Godard 1965 film. 1965. Um, but first, of course, when you go back to, to doing all that research, making your own global tour, meeting all those people, and finding the right witnesses to, to tell your story, um, you eventually found out that there was this whole shadow world, under the shadow world. Can you talk a bit about that? And then we could maybe go to uh, a special role right,
1: it was one character who indeed we interviewed and we had glued the whole film around this protagonist, which Ricardo de Viterra, who's indeed a weapon dealer, but who had contacted us. He had read the book. He said he wrote this book about corruption. Why am I not in the book? So he was trying to use us to find an alibi in order not to go to prison because he thought that Andrew would write an article about him. And he would, for, that, for that, he invented a persona that he was South African, but he had a court his in Italy, pretended not to be Italian but South African because Andrew Feinstein is, is South African and he was using us to actually find an alibi and he was hanging up this whole persona about being a secret uh, servant agent uh, killing people, ANC people the African National Congress, Congress uh, the, the party of Mandala that he was working for the apartheid regime but ultimately when we research, researched that it was all fake we, we actually found a block where his brother Valerio Privetera had written that actually he died from cancer, and uh, sadly we have to give up this block. And this was in January, he died in January, but we had interviewed him in March. So we didn't know what was happening, we thought something doesn't add up. Uh, and we, we, we said, let's go back, let's go back to Switzerland. He was hiding out in Batragas. he was actually fleeing from the law, he had to go to, to prison actually. And he had disappeared, and so we were looking for his wife. We interviewed his wife, and his wife said, "Well, of course he's dead, don't you know?" And then she was laughing hysterically and said, "You know, well, his brother at first place never did exist. Valeria is just a fantasy, and he made this up for himself so he would also have an alibi not to go to prison, so he could hide out safe safely in Switzerland."
0: So here you have like an arms dealer because he is an arms dealer, and all that is fact checked, like. To the end, like all the statements that are being issued in the film. So here you have an arms dealer, but sort of in line with his world, he also has multiple personas or something. So at that point, you're making a documentary that follows all the rules of investigative uh, journalism, Mm -hmm. and all of a sudden something else sneaks in, which you might call fiction. So,
1: how do you proceed from there? Well, once we were there, that discussions with, with the producers as so, well, and I thought, look, here we have a guy who spins all these fictions, but it's not different than the Tony Bears and the George Bushes with their fictions about weapons of mass destruction. This is an exact mirror of what's going on on a bigger scale. They just embellish their story to actually make more profit. And that's not unusual amongst arms dealers. This is not the Robert Fisk who actually does investigative journalism that's not his job his job is to sell weapons and if a lie can help then he will do it and um, so we wanted to verify him and and then it it didn't work out and so he was keeping sticking to his lies but what we ultimately found out and we went back uh, to Switzerland and found out that he was in prison in Lisbon, where we interviewed him he was in prison actually for a deal uh, between the Polish uh, army and the Portuguese army where uh, goodies were being so-called sold uh, for the tune of nine zero million euro, where he got in advance from the banks to solidify this, this deal, 13 million euro. But this was goodies that were, were never delivered. And this is not unusual either. You know, there's deals that happened between Angola and Russia that actually, uh, and the Francine investigated, and they were just sort of sending money back and forth, but the, the, the goodies were never delivered. What was delivered was corruption. So ultimately, is also the template of this world where actually it's not about the military material, it's about the corruption that is being sold. So it's the corruption that becomes the, the goodies. And again, this was a tap with him as so well. But again, we were actually... Uh, we were trying to sort of unmask a mainstream myth about the arms trade. So if you would that put in jeopardy by actually putting in a character who, who's not... Uh, sort of verifiable, it could actually undermine the whole main story. So we made the decision to only stick to those things that we know that are, sort of, can be verified, and cut all the rest. But then, of course, that ended up in another film. Blue and that's,
0: of course, <laughs> what we were sort of talking towards too. That you could have a liar telling the truth, or a shady character being crystal clear uh, what it's all about. But... You made this other film, Blue Orchids, um, which the the, the term is already explained in Shadow World. Mm -hmm. Uh, So shall we have a little look at some of those leftover materials, or leftover, they found a new purpose of Blue Orchids, and maybe you could explain a little bit what we're going to see.
1: All right, so, but I don't know if, um, it's 10 o'clock, eh? Should I show a little bit from the beginning as well, or...? um? No, I, he also read us his poems, and we still don't know. Until now, this is what his wife said when we interviewed his wife. He yeah. said, you know, I, want, I know one, I know two, I know three Pugetaires. But still up to today, and that was his wife, I think there's 10 or 20 uh, personas of this, this character, and I still up to this day don't know who this guy is. So when, when actually he went to prison afterwards, she invited all the colleagues, and they were sitting all around the table, and they had a different story about him. Like he, oh, he had a sister. No, he didn't have a sister. No, he's South African. No, he's Sicilian. And so there are all the stories about him that even his wife didn't know. The only (laughs) thing we could verify was the bank accounts, but then again, you still think, you know, this guy has money stashed in in corners of the world that we don't even know. He had four passports. And so apparently he's not South African, but Sicilian Jew from Russian heritage. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway. But then
0: the moment maybe you should we should see the the moment where he reads one of his poems where he's talking about okay. his time in the Falkland War um, in 1982 um, where the story goes he was as a as a South African uh, special, special forces special forces too. and then he wrote a poem about the traumatic experience. So exactly. that's what
1: But also saw. what's what's quite remarkable is that he puts all this story on the table. For example, that South Africa was involved uh, in the invasion in the Falklands, and uh, Andrew Feinstein, who was member of parliament, who was from South Africa, didn't know that. He said, Okay, I'm going to research that, and apparently that's true. Special forces from South Africa fought in the Falklands War, but they couldn't trace him. So there's always an element of truth, but then, then it goes somewhere where we can't verify. So, which is a tricky thing. So, yeah, a film like Shadow, where you have to have three or four quadruple sort of backups of of facts.
2: Enough is enough. Mm. It's a lowering, it's a raising.
0: Enough is enough.
2: That's
0: it. We are here because for the first time for many
2: years, British sovereign territory has been invaded by a foreign power. The government has now decided that a large task force will sail as soon as all preparations are complete. HMS Invincible will leave
3: port on Monday. Thank you, Thatcher. You crazy cow. And all for what? Winning the next election? Some little island in the middle of nowhere, a turd in the middle of the water. And you, my dead comrade. I am sorry. I had to kill you. I didn't want to. You're what? 18? 19? Lying there, your eyes asking me why. Your throat slit open by my gonga. You're Argentinian, I South African. And we're killing and dying for rocks full of ship shit. You see, my brother, my comrade. I'm sorry. Rules of war, I guess. You or I. Fuck you, Thatcher. Fuck you all. Why didn't you come here and do the shit yourselves? Fuck you. Written on a sleepless night, 15 November, 1994. Might there be a time when we talk to the Argentines again? No, not, not on
2: sovereignty. thing the Mountain. islanders have made it perfectly clear. These islands are British. They are the
3: Queen's loyal subjects. If they landed without getting slaughtered, it's because we took out the Argentinian Command and Control Center. We, as in the South African Special Forces? South African Special Forces did. Why were the British asking the Apartheid government
2: to do their dirty work? Because the British Empire
3: was done on the blood of South African New Zealanders and Australians. What do you think? The British couldn't find the way out of a paper bag. We had to defend our country for all the enemies inside and outside South Africa. So we went on the rampage. Our embassies were basically, you know, base camps. We had the most militarized embassies in the world. From 1974 to 92, I went from lieutenant to captain to major to lieutenant colonel to, colonel to colonel. All my campaign strips, the emblem of the South African Special Forces... This is my rank of colonel. They formed us into one hell of a fighting machine. This gentleman is something you have to earn, you don't buy. With the help of the Israelis, who gave us a special forces course, which was one of the hardest things you can never imagine. Nine weeks that make war look like a picnic. We are basically expendable rottweilers.
1: Yeah.
3: OK? But we are road
4: <laughs>
3: Our main task was not only to hunt ANC, but to attack also sympathizers, whatever they may be. We will send as far away as El Salvador, Honduras, Guatemala, Colombia, England, France, Italy.
1: Uh-huh. Okay,
0: maybe you should explain a little bit the surveillance material that uh, okay. we were just looking at and the function of that within the last story.
1: Well, uh, he, he of course he pretends to be part of Mossad. We still don't know the, the, the extent of, of that too or not, but... Uh, we still don't know actually what what he was and what he is. But there was images that we set over in, in this film, and initially was also in the film, which we cut out. But I, I kept to it. I kept to this specific cut to Jen just at the very end. We suggest in the beginning of the film that what you might see is actually through the voice of his wife that this guy is just inventing stories. And so at the end of the film... Uh, which I'm going to show uh, in a minute, is where you actually have the unmasking of this character in prison, but it's still, it's still in a way where it shines through, but it's his wife who basically says, you know, he's South African is completely invented. And when uh, Andrew Feinstein also talked to people in, in Special Forces in South Africa, never heard of him, but also all the insignias are wrong. So he bought all these uh, costumes, his uniforms on, on the internet or something, etc. But to what extent he went so far to actually... <laughs> make of this persona is, is quite remarkable and I thought you know this is a document that actually should be out there as well as, as a way of like to see how at what extent this guy is sort of in a very theatrical way and in a very believable way making him this persona and then and, and mask it as well at the very end so it's playing open cards
0: so, in Blue Orchids, you juxtapose the stories of Chris Hatches, the former war correspondent of the right, yeah. New York Times, who is also in Shadow World, uh, with Privitera's story where you have, in a way, they're also uh, uh, weird mirrors of one another because they tell the same stories about war and trauma yeah. and how they, they escape from that. But then you edit... Uh, footage from uh, uh, surveillance cameras from Dubai in this double portrait why did you have to add that uh, footage
1: well I I I, I always think also those fictions are also part of this, you know, Dubai was set with a team of 1617 Mossad agents where they took on personas which were not theirs They, they stole passports which are passports from real people and they were used to actually as a sort of disguise but also when they go into the, the hotel to, to, to actually make this killing they actually disguise themselves with wigs and whatever and, and there's also this playing persona and so there's, there's an interesting mix that happens uh, but also the persona of Chris Hedges who suffers from this enormous trauma we had then, um, uh, Ricardo Perveter at the end of, 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 of this interview specific interview crying in front of the camera while he was reading his poem so there's something that lives underneath that is, it must be extremely good theater or something must be there that I don't know where it comes from, and his wife doesn't even know as well. So I think it's an interesting document where it sort of hoovers in, uh, between sort of that the, the shadow, the real shadow world, where, where you never know what's going on. You know? And with the Dubai murder as well, there's sort of like, of course, the facts are there and the surveillance is there, but it it it, it, it this, this, this all these signifiers are shifting.
0: The surveillance is even out there on YouTube if you want yeah, yeah. to. Yeah, it's an interesting uh... Uh, uh, find. It um, for those of the audience that came here tonight and are not familiar with your work, uh, the theme or the motive of the double is kind of a recurring motive coming up. Uh, um, what Is it that sort of keeps you returning to that? And if you want to, you can go to the state museum where they played that history, history. which is very.
1: But again, it's it's also this doubling between a filmmaker, uh, uh, sorry, a (coughs) a novelist and a terrorist. It's taken from a book by Don DeLillo, where in Mao 2, dialogue is set up between these two characters, which are doubles from one another where the writer's having this dialogue with the with the terrorist and, the ter- and he contends that the terrorist has taken over his role because he's able to play the media much better than him. And so we also have this double ganger. Or he as a filmmaker embodying with both sort of the the detour, the hijacking of meanings, but also embodying with, with the writer who is who's condoned to the to the to the edges of society because he's not he's doesn't have a voice anymore politically. And where do you stand as as a filmmaker? So this doubling is sort of interesting. But it's more present in the Double gamers, uh, the Hitchcock Double Gamers in Double Take, where we literally worked with the Double Gamer. And, and, well, in itself, you know, in do- in Double Take, it's, uh, Hitchcock as a filmmaker, and Hitchcock has, the, because he crossed over to television, Hitchcock as a television maker where this doubling is, hap- is happening as well. But it's set against a political backdrop where Khrushchev and Kennedy are, are playing on a riff where they actually metaphorically come to stand for what those Hitchcock embody in a very intimate way where one Hitchcock wants to get rid of another Hitchcock and what is projection of fear is being sort of part of like projecting that onto the double and the fear of the double is yeah Freud calls it a symptom of the uncanny but it's very much a symptom of male hysteria where the, the, the man is actually doubling and doesn't see the the, the belonging of uh, or the longing or the desire of the person in front of him the woman could also be a man of course but uh, but that, that actually he doesn't come to terms with, with somebody a person in front of him who has his own desires and only makes projections onto the other, which are often uh, 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 elaborate sort of fictions of fear. It has a lot to do it.
0: with fear and anxiety. Now that you brought in Freud, I, I hesitate to ask the following question, but I still have to, because <laughs> it's... Um, maybe we should... Sort of put Freud behind a chair anyway. but in a way, working so closely together with a journalist on this or oh, also that's also a form of doubling yeah. where you have an, an artist, an artist and a journalist
1: uh, exactly, so one on one sometimes can be zero, but sometimes one on one can be two and so it's sort of complementary like within a music composition where the overtones take over, and you make something that actually transcends that that's also possible. So
0: should we go to the end of uh, Blue Orchids? Or yeah, we, we can we
1: can jump and, and see the unmasking. Because I think it's crucial. I, I think, it, of course, uh, this whole film takes you on a ride, but then it exposes that. But I think it's very much also a mirror of what's happening in society. For me, it, 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 that was sort of the way I thought it was crucial to also have it out there. And the film ends also with a quote from Aesop w- saying that we put the small thieves in in prison but the biggest uh, biggest ones we put in office and so that sort of sums it all up but let's jump to the very end where we find them in prison
0: and where we can see something that only cinema actually can do, just observe people
1: so this was initially, because this is an older version of Shadow World, where the film ended here but this is sort of, and uh, we, we put the dates as well. So we, we add the dates so that, you know, oh, this is an interview of that date, but this is now an extension of that film with another interview. Johan? Yeah. Okay, so... Yeah, here we go.
2: I finally managed to speak to her today, the ex-wife. Andrea Colde is her name. So I said to her, I'm phoning because I've been interviewing Ricardo and he's just disappeared. And I just want to try and verify a few things with you. She laughed
1: hysterically and she said, but don't you know, he's
2: dead. So I said, what do you mean? She said, his brother Valerio posted a blog to announce his death. But first of all, Valerio has never existed. That was Ricardo, I'm sure, writing it. And I know he's not dead. Because my lawyers checked it out. That's what she said.
1: Unamore Grande,
3: Grande,
1: Grande,
3: Grande, Grande, to a sentence of seven years and two months for the crimes of serious fraud conspiracy of embezzlement in the falsifying of Polish documents and one crime of false declarations to the inquiring magistrate. Now, this is where it gets interesting. Look at this shit. Alright, use your brains. They used a guy with the same name as me, who was born on the same date, but not the same year. You understand? I mean I'm fifty-six, this guy is fifty-five. It's not me. There's a guy who was a corporal called Ricardo Privitero who's got a conviction in Italy from nineteen ninety. Excuse me, I wasn't even in Italy in nineteen ninety. It's not me. I told them this at the trial. This gentleman has got nothing to do with me. Nothing. Hey, come on, man. This Ricardo Primitero was arrested, right? He must have photographs. He must have fingerprints. What are they? This Italian guy. I don't know him. That well. was 17 kilos, man. Yes. 17 kilos? I'm telling you, Andrew, and I'm looking you straight in the eyes that everything I've told you is true. I have no idea at all. See, look, look at this. you know this is not the Hilton. <laughs> when I read this bullshit about this other guy, I found this out in court. I said, Are you out of your fucking mind? It's
1: not me.
0: from one moment to the next i just didn't know any longer
5: who i was married to if i was married whoever he is after he got arrested
0: i had no idea what is a lie and what is the truth i just called all these people in from the warsaw office from england i all had them at the table here in vienna and everybody had another story about Ricardo. You don't know who he is. I mean, I just don't know any longer what to think about this man. I, I
3: really don't. You won't find any record in South Africa regarding people like me. People like me were taken out of the loop. But we were not going to discuss this here.
2: Any of special forces insignia, we couldn't verify any of the ribbons,
0: any of the medals. I'm not surprised. Yeah, wait, well, no, those
3: are verifiable anyway, like you just have to have a look at. You know, yeah, that's really. what we did.
0: Uh-huh. And
2: we could find nothing that
3: linked them to South African special forces, to. That's, uh, that's pretty strange because some of the ribbons there are basically from South Africa.
0: So I continued this, this one Ricardo.
3: Ricardo.
0: I mean this South African one, I don't know when that one was generated.
2: But he definitely
0: lives his South African
1: personality.
0: But I don't know how many others
1: exist. Okay.
0: Okay, Andrea Polar being I guess the voice that we all share. I I can't believe it. And now that yesterday the Oxford Dictionary announced that "fact-free" or tr- well, "post-truth" is the word of the year, uh, yeah. I guess that's m- more or less what's being illustrated. Um, before we go to the alternative narrative that you also investigated in Shadow World, maybe it's time to see if we have questions from the audience so far. Please. I think I saw a hand. Please go ahead. Yes.
4: Uh, Yes. Uh, I had a question about uh, your trajectory as an artist. Uh huh. Uh, In your early films, as it was. As it was. Yeah. So my question is, uh, for your trajectory as an artist, in your earlier films, uh, you were um, very much putting forward the theme of ambiguity. And uh, letting, in a way, uh, the viewer decide what was happening in the frame and leaving this space of interpretation. Uh, And in this film that we saw today, um, also maybe because of the prevalent use of talking heads, Mm -hmm. in a way, we are told what to think, very much, about what's going on. Uh, It's about corruption, it's about how the money rules the world, it's about profit... Uh, I was wondering, wh- why did you make this choice of leaving so much, uh, so little, in a way, to the uh, viewer uh, to interpret or to uh, question
1: about what it is seeing? Well, it's building a case. Huh? This is investigative journalism, so you build a case. So it's not like a, a poem, although we we can we could talk about it as well and like sort of put that where that stands in, the, in perspective in this film but uh, of course it's a, it's a very different uh, beast and it's a different story which needs different tools <coughs> and so here you do it through by way of the talking heads who tell the story I wouldn't necessarily agree that actually it hits you over the head because it leaves very much the things open uh, <coughs> where there's, there's a case being built but then it leaves the things hanging in, in the middle and you can make your own interpretations. I don't think it hits over the head saying it's not that or that or that. Of course it uncovers and it masks, but that's the purpose of this of this film. That's that's the the genre of this film, it's investigative journalism. But I hope I hope that still also that sort of it creates a bigger context where it opens up also the way you look at those things even the interview itself, the way there's an emotional uh, sort of connection to where they're actually Portrayed, for example, that I think it still leaves an openness of where something shines through of the character. Maybe it's more subtle, maybe it's not that they're actually a fiction, because of course, this is a book, it's based on a book that is not fiction. Like Dial History is based on Mao and White Noise, which are two fiction novels. And it's sort of a more existential inquiry where it's free floating in associations, where it's building a case around. Where do we stand in relation to imagery? With Double Take, it's the intimate story of, of uh, Hitchcock meeting Hitchcock. Again, it's a fiction story set against that whole sort of unraveling of the Cold War and the fear paranoia, but where it sketches the film of how the fear industry came into being, and a lot of cinemas were closing down, and so there's a different way of how it relates to storytelling. Here, it's, a, it's, it's actually a book about the corruption of the global arms trade, so it builds a case from the business of war to selling war to instigating war and so it was trying to show that template and I think it's trying to unmask something but not sort of I, I hope not I hope not. maybe I might be mistaken maybe it doesn't come across as that but maybe I hope it doesn't hit you over the head but at least it gives you a couple of voices and a couple of of, of, of examples of like what's, what's sort of out there but, uh, of course it's a very different beast But a story, you know, there's also other films i made where it's completely tilted in towards fiction. Here it's sort of tilted towards something where a different tool is needed. And so...
0: But also I think that's (coughs) why you're extremely lucky that you're here in the audience tonight, that we get to see some more of those outtakes, which is the presence of the political philosopher Michael Hart who is interviewed in the film, but you also made a, a whole film about him and we've already referred to that um, yeah. in the film with Alpha Phil, de Godard film yeah. in it. So maybe you could talk a bit more about him and why he was so important for you in in developing this counter-narrative.
1: I wanted to add something as well, that, um, and it touches upon Michael Hart as well, is that well, Dal History and Take is very much a, a research into media manipulation. It's about the image and, and as such as also the form. But I think uh, the move towards shadow world is modern ontology where the reality is at stake and where fictions proliferate actually in, the, in, in, in politics and out there in the real world, whatever that real is. So I think it's more about investigating what, what, whatever is reality and sort of breaking that open. So it's a very different trajectory from media manipulation, where you play on the genre of media manipulation and where ambiguity is very much important towards something where you unmask an ontology. And I think that's very different than political ontology, for that matter. And I think that's where the ambiguity is, where actually, if you choose to actually talk about ambiguity and unmask that, you can't be ambiguous. You'd rather have to choose for a different way of telling the story. And that's why also I this guy is cut, up, cut out and that the ambiguity about this character has become a different film. But it's still there. There's a double ganger of the film which is a double, sort of a double ontology which is a double story as well. And it still is out there in the world together. But it's it's a very different trajectory. I've been thinking about that a lot and this whole idea of ontology is, is, is something quite crucial in this film. It's also Marta Benavides who says, you know, if you want to have peace out there It's not like giving peace or making peace. Or She says it's becoming peace, it's being peace, which is very different. She also says, you know, I work for the UN, you know, you have all these talks about, oh, we have to empower the women, we have to empower the South. No, women are power, the South is power, and so it's about an ontology. It's not about sort of trying to, you know, push it onto somebody. Uh, Anyway, we can go on and on and on, but there's also Karl Rove who says, you know, we are an empire now, we create reality. And so if you want to, like, kick that, then I think it's sometimes good to say what, what things are. Again, saying with that matter that actually reality is not what it is and that the, the film is delving into that and that the ambiguity is the bigger context. Um, so I don't know how... It's a political how. choice. Thanks. What? So it's a political choice. Can you, take this you If you might say so, if you might say so. I think the world is in such a dire state that actually, you know even a radical state that I cannot but be sort of making that change towards sort of making becoming a bit like sort of more maybe straightforward yeah but I don't think I still don't think it hits you over the head but you know I might be wrong I didn't say it hits you over the head
4: I was just saying it was less exploring the possibilities of ambiguity and more making an argument
1: yeah but if your subject matter is ambiguity itself, then it becomes very different, and that's the thing. It's that change. Uh, uh, Every day, words disappear. <laughs> well, yeah, but it touches upon this whole yeah, story yeah, of ontology sort of, as well.
0: It comes forth from that because, in a way, well, you should explain that how Michael Hart talks about an ontology of love. So exactly.
1: He does that well. He says, you know, all these words are corrupted: love and democracy and, you know, community, uh, peace. These are words that are corrupted, and uh, that we need different tools to talk about these things. And uh, of course, let's let's not show like a lot because we're getting towards uh, ten thirty. Let's maybe uh, show three minutes, and then maybe jump to Talis. Uh, these are things we also cut out and as I said before it juxtaposes Alphaville with Michael Hart and again it's fiction versus somebody who talks who's a political philosopher he's not at all uh, naive about love because with Hannah Arendt he says also if you marry love with politics you you easily get into fascism totalitarianism so it's very tricky to to define it as well and I asked him why not empathy because we had interviewed Franz Zewaar on empathy he says empathy you know, you can feel empathy for the other, but just you leave them there. You know, you can feel empathy for the south, whatever. You know, feel empathy for the for the refugees, but that's it. You know, when you talk about an ontology of love, you, you actually make a commitment where maybe it changes your ontology, changes your reality. So I, I thought it was an interesting answer. Again, these I, I let I let Michael Hart speak, and I don't know if I if I would talk about the things if I would choose the word love, maybe I would choose the word community or something. But I think it's crucial things that that with AlphaVille I still think it's so important to sort of like think about these bigger bigger matters. It's so easy to put a gun on a poster and then you have fifteen percent more ticket sales. But trying to talk about love is a tough one because it's it's sort of like so corrupted. So But let's let's watch a little bit. And then maybe we jump to uh we interviewed another character, Raymond cognitive scientist, and we, we we talk about tickling. Um uh, one question was, you know, how come one cannot tickle oneself? <laughs> and the thing is that actually you need the other to tickle you. And he's, he's a professor of medicine, so he, he's been studying brains for such a long time. So he's a cognitive scientist turned philosopher who, in a sense, talks about consciousness. He says, consciousness with Hegel, politics, is, politics is, is first of all a community of minds. You know, consciousness needs to be recognized. And for him, consciousness is, is profoundly relational. You know, it's it's you know, like with language, you know, you learn language from someone else, from your mother, from your father, and then you use that language to express yourself. Consciousness is is profoundly relational. He would even question, you know, the eye of the cart, the cogito argument from I think therefore I am he would say maybe it's more like something like we die of, therefore we are. Anyway, this is the the next bit. But it touches upon one another because these are both bits that were cut out of the film. Where I think it's sort of it was trying to open up of course obviously to put tickling next to uh, politicians was not an easy one. But, anyway, so let's let's uh, watch a little bit of, of uh, everyday words disappear. <laughs> <laughs>
3: impossible, princesse. Il faut y arriver toute seule, alors vous serez sauvés. Si vous n'y arrivez pas, vous êtes perdus comme les morts d'alphabie.
5: Well, he asks, it's and the prince: Is it better for the prince to be feared or loved? And his answer is: It's better to be feared. Whereas the prince should favor fear, because, like he says, since it resides in him, it's constant for him. The people maybe should favor love, because it resides in them; it's in their power, and so for them could be constant and long-lasting. I mean, so Machiavelli already opens a question that he, he probably doesn't provide us the answer with. What would it mean to have our social arrangement, like the basis of our social choices, be founded on love? My academic friends have a lot of difficulty with this love business, either for sentimentalism or they think I've been hanging out too much with Italians, whatever the problem is, is something like that. If you're talking about love, they assume, okay, you're just talking about sex. Oh, it's it's like femaleist can talk about love. We shouldn't talk about it. 18 days of the occupation taught square in Cairo in January 2011. One of the funny things was every day in the New York Times, they were searching for the real leaders. One day it was El Baraday, the Nobel physicist. Another day it was a Google executive. Each day they were trying to figure out who's really behind this. Like, who's the single voice that's doing this? What they couldn't understand was the fascinating thing that was going on in the square was that a variety, a multiplicity of diverse groups were collaborating together and acting politically in a way that was not unified. I think that's an incredibly important experiment and the kind of experiment that we've seen repeated in recent years with in the most powerful or the most interesting social movements. How to act politically as a equal multiplicity of different groups. I wouldn't say they've all been successful, but that seems to me it's it's a animated by a political desire, animated by a political desire for democracy. So I would call I would call these kind of experiments experiments in a, in a political love.
1: continues to uh, expand upon the commons and puts that against privatization and looking for a political story how we can talk about a different we uh, yeah There's but he use
0: also uses a very interesting term which is equal multiplicity and he uses it in a, in a political way but since we're also talking here about shadow worlds and all its spin-offs it's also a term we could use for this artistic I don't know construction that you made is that also a form of an equal multiplicity
1: um, I recently read a quote by uh James Baldwin that he said uh we we should defend ultimately defend uh ambiguity <laughs> and the human riddle and I thought it was interesting um, seems to be the theme of tonight, the but uh, that that we actually live from contradictions uh, but michael hart comes up with this uh, new term multitude together with antonio negri yeah? uh, multitude as a way of, of a new form of how democracy can come about he has been critiqued a lot as well for that actually could could sort of immobilize you and that there's never sort of a, a clear focus to like make political decisions but uh, of course yeah i think it's 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 an interesting uh, idea is set for the multitude where where multiple groups can come together and still sort of in, as, a, as a multitude can, can make decisions uh, but half of that relates to the multiplicity of, multitude of me and Andrew working on a project, yeah, maybe but, uh.
0: let's invite the audience to tickle one another and then after that we can see if they have some more questions for you or just want to tickle you so let's go to Raymond Tellis yeah. Ah, the, uh, or are there questions? questions right now? Okay, let's learn something about tickling then.
1: Should we show? Like, I could show the first three minutes. It's uh, yeah, because yeah, okay. Then we'll have some time. It's a longer, it's a longer, a uh, little longer clip, but uh, anyway.
2: tickle ourselves is quite intriguing, because the stimulus you apply to the skin is the same as the stimulus that somebody else would apply to the skin, so you'd expect your tickling me and my tickling me would feel the same. But it isn't. I can't tickle myself. Tickling is about surprise. Tickling is about a sense of the unpredictability of other people, a sense of their otherness.
1: Probably the most
2: famous moment in Western philosophy is Descartes' cogito argument. I can doubt everything, he says, apart from the fact that I am, because of the very fact that I'm thinking proves that I am. But if you look a little more closely at that argument, it doesn't deliver all that much. What is the I that Descartes thinks that he's found?
1: By itself, the
2: standalone I is alien in a curious sort of way, because the I, in many ways, is constructed out of we out of our shared experience of the world. There's a tendency when we think about human consciousness to think of it as something inside our heads. But consciousness right from the beginning is profoundly relational. If one was really doing Descartes' insight justice, we could translate it as, we dialogue, therefore we are.
1: <laughs> okay we dialogue therefore we are yeah and
0: then we're laughing but we're having war again. So which way is war? a form of dialogue proving our existence?
1: Well, I couldn't resist to undermine a little bit what's been said. <laughs>
0: Are there any questions left in the audience? No. Do yes, please.
1: Connection
2: between clips that we just seen with themes such as love um, uh-huh. and and the that we saw earlier. And I have an idea in my head, but I would like to hear it from yeah, you yeah, just yeah. because I don't know your work so well.
0: Okay, I'll repeat the question for those who couldn't hear it. Um, the question was: um, If you want to talk a bit more about the relationship between the clips we've just seen and the
2: film shadow world and and, and, the, and the topic that I guess someone like me sorry and the topic that I guess someone like me who you know is interested in in, in, in uh, the international tr- uh, arms trade and corruption and um, and these, these these clips.
1: Yeah, of course. Well, if Andrew would have been here, you know, we would have bounced off ping pong way in, in a very different discussion. Of course, the idea first of all was always to sort of maybe tonight show some things that were cut out from the film, and of course it's a different trajectory, and I and I tend to like now, of course, except for Richard, uh, Ricardo Breviterra, which is because it's a curious character, and, and it's emblematic for that world, uh, which is a different story, but you're probably interested in sort of why it's tickling, uh, you know, <laughs> part of this topic. I think that, again, what I said is that uh, the arms trade is a symptom of something much larger, where I think a symptom of a profound sense of belonging that we've lost. And the cult of privatization has actually sort of extended that or, or exacerbated that. And I truly believe that. And, and, and as which, which I mentioned before, because saw it, that, that it's not only privatization, privatization of our tax money and goodies and ultimately ending up in war and, and killing people, but also privatization of our imagination. And in a sense the privatization of our imagination that we all have become consumers private consumers of fear and that we lost the story lost the story of like how we can define a new political story of course it's very far-fetched if you say we're going to make a film about the arms trade then you want to amass that and stick to the to the topic but i think you know by actually looking for those juxtaposition positions you can tell a story that i think goes much further and uh, of course, you see, Tickling is indeed very far away and it's not part of the film that's being cut out. And I made that decision as well. So I saw At one point, it's so far apart, because we had also Raymond Thomas, because it's only, it's only a little bit. Huh? But uh, he was talking about uh, Thatcher, how she had defined that there's no such thing as society. And he went on and said, well, here he is, uh, Thatcher is using the word society, which he learned from society, to describe a very complex thing that is called society in the words of society. And, and since that was cut out of the film I couldn't like go on with the immortality and shot tickling but it stemmed from that moment where Reagan and Thatcherism was being dismantled in the film as, as a sort of uh, uh, a myth that the greed is good is sort of a myth because greed has depleted what, what, whatever sort of like also was left of, of our economic institutions etc etc and that actually you know ever since the 80s with also this books like The Selfish Gene, Richard Dawkins who, you know, all these new books have been published on empathy actually have totally undermined that actually cooperation is much more important than than competition or or survival of the fittest. And survival of the fittest, again, survival of the fittest is is a term that was sort of appropriated by Herbert Spencer to give it an economic twist. Uh, uh, Darwin mentions it twice in his Origin of the Species, but he mentions love 80 times. It's a very different thing. I think all these myths, sociodarmist myths, have been abused by the art trade as well. You know, Hillary, Hillary uh, Clinton was hitting with this whole uh, sort of idea of the demonic man, which she took from Richard Randall's book, which is the Harvard School, which we actually initially were intending to interview as well, where we were tracing the whole idea about the, the killer chimp, but then there's uh, Franz De Waal, who did all this research, in the, 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 the bonobo, which is the hippie chimp. And, and, and sort of where he says, you know, well, we could as much compare with the chimpanzees as with the bonobo. And the bonobo even has frontal sex and stands up in a way where he's closer to humanity. But all of that has been cut. That that's was part of the four-hour cut. But it was so trying to point at where one could think about all these myths and dismantle them in a way where they're actually pervading, you know, political, political stories. You know how many times people like go back and say, "Oh, war is part of our genetics." It's not. War is a cultural contagion. You take what you
2: what you can profit from, and that's what your narrative becomes, I guess. You mean for, film? For, for people like Clinton or <coughs> anybody who's uh, who, who focuses on on a certain narrative that um, that uh, their own
1: position profits from. Exactly, and I think it's crucial to. That was a huge discussion with Andrew. So well. the, the questions you were asking me, are the questions also that Andrew was asking all the time. You know, uh, why does Richard, uh, why does Raymond tell us about taking? <laughs> and I think it's so crucial also to to actually contextualize that a bigger a bigger story. That's what the film. Well, the film can do. The book is something else. And of course, I think the, the this 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 voice from the south, from the global south, from Benavides, Mutazar al Montazeralizadeh. That's ultimately what actually gave a more emotional story to the whole thing, which is, it's not dismantling those myths, but actually it, it uh, uh, like, hardly felt how that actually was what it does to the world, which uh, ultimately was a bigger part of the film. Again, you know, love came back to the back door uh, with Chris Hedges, who been to hell, you know, and uh, in the most severe places where humanity was showing its worst he ultimately came out saying, "I'm traumatized." But ultimately, what's so crucial is, you know, this connection to the other. Hell is the inability to love. That's what kills people. And and so, ultimately, he, he says, you know, it's love that transcends time. He, he you know, it was, I was surprised, when he sort of put that on the table. He was nearly in tears. But I think ultimately that juxtaposition is so crucial. I think when you tell stories. I appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. I think we have time
0: for one
4: last question. I'm just, uh, I I appreciated your starting with Friedman because I think that Friedman's um, deviation, (laughs) it has been really, really important and it
1: hasn't been corrected. But um, I just wanted to say that uh, when Darwin is considering fitness, he is not just considering individual greed. He says you have to have social fitness also when you're talking Depression, about survivability yeah. when you're talking about survival with the fittest it's the fittest to be social exactly that uh, has been twisted way. by Herbert Spencer yeah, yeah. to mention yeah. also the imperial, imperializing twisted sense I yeah. Kropotkin who was a, a, th- a, a yeah. Kropotkin who came yeah. to, came to, to different, different well he came he to, to different, different findings but he was not so far apart of Darwin but he's, he is this aristocratic anarchist oh. from Russia <laughs> But he, he found out that actually animals huddle together in the sepia and snow, and they huddle together, but they survive because they huddle together. And so the physics is the one who cooperates. And I think uh, even like and I don't know, you're supposed to go back to Ferg, but he had a big problem with his mother. And I think, you know, what Franz de Waal came about, uh, uh, argues as well is that the empathic, mother with, with the, the empathic bond with the mother is so much more important than aggression that it's not aggression who's the, the engine of evolution, it's actually what Raymond Talisman was arguing about, is language and consciousness. Maybe we didn't stand up to actually pick up a weapon, but we stood up to give a hand or to start dancing or give a kiss or whatever, but to, to stand face-to-face and dialogue, which is a very different picture. If I might add one more example, which is, everybody knows Space Odyssey uh, 2001. It starts with a skiller who picks up a bone and then starts killing, and that sort of sets forth the, the human uh, birth of civilization. And this goes back to Raymond Dart, who actually had this findings in the Swarstone Cave, where he found all the skulls with two holes, and he, did, he decided that, actually, he concluded that that was the first sign of war. He says, Australopithecus, our human ancestors, are actually, you know, warlike people. Then, you know, Robert Ardley, in the, in the 60s, picks this up and writes African Genesis and Territorial Imper- Imperative, and Stanley Kubrick and Arthur Clarke are inspired by this to actually make this opening scene in Space Odyssey 2001. Only three or four, <coughs> four years later, Casey Brain comes on the same territory of the Schwarzkopf came and finds these two big fangs who fit exactly in those holes, in all the same skulls. And he says, actually, we were not actually the hunters, but we were the hunted." And so the, the scene that you see in Space Odyssey is completely fake. It's complete bullshit. It's completely off the chart. But we live as those, and we become part of our sort of uh, human memory, of our collective memory, and it's completely wrong. Anyway, yeah. that was in the film. Thank <laughs> you so much
0: for dialoguing with us, audience. Thank you so much for dialoguing with Johan, and I'm sure the dialogue you will have with the film uh, will continue Ooh. Um, Johan and Andrew Feinstein will be talking more about the film on Saturday in the in the Bali and probably that'll cater a bit more for your interests. And on Sunday there's also uh, Thomas Elsasser, the academic, talking more about themes of the of the double in the Sdelek. In the Stavelik you can see the um, Dial History and Cobra Wayne, your your first film? Yes for my two as well films. Anyway, beautiful on, on, on a big wall in the auditorium and I'm sure you will be around for more screenings and the film will be, uh, for those of you who were from the Netherlands, will be distributed uh, theatrically so you can also go and watch it again with all your friends and neighbors and dialogues and more. Thank you so
3: much.